0: I am Shannon, pastor at Sturgeon Bay Community Church. I want to thank you for joining us during our study of the book of Mark, where the theme is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. The whole point of studying this book is so that you can find out more about what the Bible has to say about the person and the work and the message of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to grab a cup of coffee and a notebook and let's dive into the book of Mark. And I hope that you could join us sometime soon for a live service where ministry happens in relationships and you can get connected to other brothers and sisters in the faith. See you soon. Well, we are in the book of Mark. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be going to the 13th chapter today. So if you've got your Bibles or if you don't, Mark chapter 13 is where we will be. Let me just continue to set the stage in case you haven't been in a couple weeks or if you're new to Sturgeon Bay Community Church. We are taking most of 2017 and 18 just to walk our way through the book of Mark. The very first of the gospels written, John Mark was the one in whose house the last supper would have been held. It's where Jesus appeared after his resurrection. It was written sometime between 63 to 66 AD or CE if you prefer. It was written by John Mark in the city of Alexandria. And as he was writing it, he was recording the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was born sometime around 3 BC and whose death and resurrection occurred during 30 AD. So this is the time frame. This is the setting of the book of Mark. So as we go into it each time, it's important to remember that's where we are and that's what we're talking about. Today, as we enter into the 13th chapter What I want to do is make sure that all of our minds and all of our thoughts are concentrated and turned, focused on the central theme that Jesus is going to be making sure we keep in front of our hearts, in front of our minds, in front of our eyes as we read. And that central theme right now is grace. It may not seem like it, though. As you come to this point in the book, it sounds like, holy cow, here we go into the whole end times thing. And it's going to be destruction and figurative speech and metaphors and all these confusing images. What Jesus is going to do right now is going to help you understand, as he did the apostles, the disciples that day, what the transformation uh, is going to be that's happening right now. You see, at the beginning of time, the way God interacted with mankind was that mankind was, was very good. We were made without sin. We were able to live our lives in a perfect, uh, perfect world that had no failings in it, that had no death, that had no corruption, had no rot, had no things that were opposed to us. Adam and Eve, however, um, fell into sin, and with sin came the curse. Uh, Later on, God would provide the law to His people. As they came out of Egypt, He would give them the law, and it's this law that would give His people an opportunity to know how to be at peace with God. And by following the law, and by following the system of sacrifices and laws that God had provided the people of Israel would be in a state of grace. God would, would offer forgiveness and a return to relationship with Him as a result of having... What in the world is that noise? As a result of having been in... Um, in, in what is that? <laughs> oh, it's kids in the back. Okay, I'm sorry. I was like, what is that sound? I thought the air conditioning was breaking or something. <laughs> you Go ahead. I know what it is now. I'm fine. Sorry. The ADD among us, I'm like, what in the world happened? The grace for the people under the law was that because of the law, they could be in a restored relationship with God. Their relationship with God was one of grace extended, not deserved but extended, because of their, their attempt to follow him through the law. But Scripture tells us that it's impossible for human beings to completely keep all of the law because we're fallen people. And if there's 613 laws that were a part of it, eventually you get to the point where you recognize, I can't keep them all. And then we realize that God's grace is what I'm dependent on. And No matter how much I try, at the end of the day, I still depend on him saying, I love you. You're doing a great job. You're coming along. I love you where you are. I'm asking you to keep coming. But it's grace that God extends. The same way we do to our children when they know what's right and they do it not. The same way we love our kids when we go on a road trip and they're in the back. You know, I love you, but I want to take you out of the car right now and paddle you. But there's the leave your sister, leave your brother a quick quiet. You still love them and you extend grace and you forgive because they're children, right? Grace is often referred to as God's riches at Christ's expense, a little acronym there. And that works. Today, what we're going to be looking at, though, is what grace looks like in the New Testament era, for the church. What is it? You see, there's a big difference between grace and law and justice, right? Justice, you see, is when you get exactly what you deserve. So just as a quiz as we go into this, how many of you today, and I want you to raise your hands really high on this one because I I don't want there to be any mess up. You ready? Put your drink down. You ready? Okay, just be ready to raise your hands. How many of you could say today, That you are without sin, you are flawless, you are perfect, and today you could walk up in front of heaven and go, open the gates, this is my peeps, this is where I belong, I am perfectly suited to this place. You ready? One, two, three. Hands up. Of course not. Of course not. Because every single one of us realizes we're imperfect. We have flaws, we have failings, we have shortcomings, and there's a word for all that, and that word is sin. All of us have it. Had it not been for the grace of God, justice would be served. And justice would be that all who have sinned, all who have opposed God, would be removed from God's presence. And we would die in that sin and be punished for that sin. Because at its core, every single sin, when we boil it right down, has to do with pride and idolatry. That's what it is. If God made us, made you, and told us what his standard is. And we rebel against it. That rebellion is sin. And sin requires justice. Grace is the opposite of that. You see, grace is God's riches bestowed on you. Forgiveness. The sanctifying process. Love. Acceptance. Inclusion. Bypassing what you deserve. And giving you what Jesus Christ wants you to have because of the price that he paid for you that's the story of grace but understand this God will not be mocked and a time comes throughout history it has come where God has said my people are stiff-necked they have refused me they have opposed me and I have poured out grace and forgiveness and opportunity but from time to time God brings judgment justice and what we're going to look at in the that Discourse this morning is exactly that time. Justice is going to come. God is going to punish. God is going to change the change the paradigm. And grace will become uh, manifest through Jesus and through the church and no longer through the law and the Jewish system. So that's really the transition Jesus is going to be talking about today. We all in? You understand where we are? got the, the groundwork's kind of laid. All right. Um, So this is where we find. Today, there'll be a few subtopics we engage as we move through it. First of all, we're going to talk about what is this Olivet Discourse that takes place on April the 5th or 6th, depending on how you read it, Um, in 30 AD. um, We're going to be, uh, secondly, looking at how we read this and understand the difference between context and pretext, because it's important. And then third, we're going to close really with this, fear and dread, not for us. That's not for us. We, we are not people who live in fear and worry and dread and anxiety. That is not the life of Jesus' people. That is not the life of the Christian. So these are the these are the three areas we'll engage as with the over overarching uh, umbrella or theme of grace this morning. So um, with that said, let's go to Mark chapter 13. We're going to go verses 1 through 19 today. We'll pick up next week and go a little further, but Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 19. 8 to, uh, to start with, then 9 to 13, and then 14 to 19. All right, here we go. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will happen, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. Jesus told them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of the birth pangs. But you, be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all the nations, so when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you at that time, for... It isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and father is child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down or go to eat anything out of his house, and, or to get anything out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray it won't happen in winter. For those will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now, and never will be again. If the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would be saved. But he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. Then, if anyone tells you, see, here is the Messiah, see there, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I've told you everything in advance. Now, Jesus, um, during during the course of this, has been on the Temple Mount teaching for days and days and days. Thousands of people are gathering to hear this great rabbi teach. And the folks who are around him have come to recognize that, that this, this teacher, this Messiah, this Jesus, um, is the son of David. He's the person who has come and he has brought incredible uh, awareness of what the Old Testament, the Torah scriptures have been teaching. And he's brought these people to the point where they're seeing he is the Messiah, the son of God. The inescapable message. But there's a lot of people who had claimed to be Messiah coming up to this point. There were several who had come before him. There are several who are going to come after it. And so Jesus is going to be, uh, at this point, preparing his apostles, his disciples, and all the readers for what's about to happen. So this is prophecy. So the Olivet Discourse is what chapter 13 of Mark and chapters 23, 24, 25 of Matthew are also known as. This time, uh, these prophecies are going to be the turning point in all of history. And Jesus is telling you about them ahead of time. So whenever we read prophecy, there's some rules that we need to make sure we're understanding. These are called hermeneutical rules, okay? I know that's a big word. If you're not used to doctrine and theology, you're going to be okay. Uh, We're going to say the word together so it doesn't scare you anymore, okay? The word is hermeneutics, so let's say it together, hermeneutics, okay? That's just like saying, you know, uh, cardiovascular surgery, okay? You know, it's about the heart, surgery of the heart, you understand what it is. When we talk about hermeneutics, this is the way that we read, interpret, and understand and make application of Scripture. That's really what that is. If you're bad at hermeneutics, you're good at making a fool of yourself. Got it? Isn't that great? I'll say it one more time for those of you who are like, Shannon said, fool. If you're bad at hermeneutics, you're good at making a fool of yourself. If you're good at hermeneutics, chances are you stand a better uh, chance <laughs> of reading the Scripture accurately and making accurate um, Um, interpretation. So there's a few of those rules we want to understand. How do you read the Bible in order to avoid myths or bad understandings? First of all, there's a little phrase. It says that text without context is often the victim of pretext. Okay, now what's pretext? Anybody know what pretext is? Have you ever turned the news on in our country? Have you ever listened to any, any commentator or news anchor speak you know what happens? They have, uh, the people who write for them, of course, the people who own them and pay their salaries, they have a preconceived point of view or worldview, and so anything they see, they see within that worldview, and they make application of that worldview to what they're seeing, and that's how they report it. That's called pretext. When we go into the scripture, a lot of times we go in, well, let's be honest, Almost all the time, we go in and we have a general idea of what we think is right, what we've heard from uh, teachers that we've respected or folks who've gone before us, and, and we take their point of view and what we already think and believe is true, and we read the scripture based upon what we already assume we know. Is anybody else guilty of that? Anybody else? Okay. Uh, and every hand goes up on that one. And, and here's the thing. It's the human condition. And, and hear me. Listen. It's okay. It's okay. If we can understand it, then when we approach the Scripture recognizing those might be there, um, we're a step ahead, and we can be good hermeneutical students of reading the Scripture. Can you imagine any pretexts we might have going into the Olivet Discourse? Are there any at all? How many of you grew up hearing of things like rapture and tribulation and antichrists and Three and a half years and three and a half years and white horses and red horses and bowls and damnations and returns. You've heard of these, haven't you? We all If you've been in the church for any amount of time, you've probably heard of it. Even in the Lutheran church. Don't even act like you Lutherans out there escaped it. You do it too. I know you do. But here's the thing. There's truth here because these are Jesus' words. What we have to do is make sure that we engage that text without the pretext of what we think we might know and make sure we hear it the right way. Here's the second rules that go along with, with hermeneutics. We're going to ask questions like, uh, really important questions. Who wrote this, a.k.a. who said it? Uh, when, it was put to, when pen was put to paper, when, when Mark was writing, well, quill to vellum, whatever, when, when Mark was writing there in Alexandria, recording those words of Peter as Peter and the other apostles and, and disciples had, had remembered them and were sharing them with Mark, who wrote this passage and who said it? See, we know Mark wrote it around 63 to 66 in the Common Era or Anno Domini after Christ. We realize that that's when he wrote it. But when was it said? See, we realize it was said on April the 5th or 6th in 30 AD. And he's on the Mount of Olives looking across at the temple. The Mount of Olives at this time still had the the cedars and the olive trees. It was a beautiful garden, a grove of trees. And then they were looking across to the temple mount. The temple, which, by the way, was, was standing, what we understand, is 114 meters tall. Wow! A three or 400 foot tall building in the ancient world, covered in plates of gold. Limestone that had been polished to the point that it would blind you. It was so glistening. They said you could see the temple in Jerusalem from a day's journey away by sea or by land. That is incredible. And Jesus and his apostles, they're sitting across the mountain, and they're looking at that amazing edifice, and and he, he had just told them every stone is going to be torn down, and so Peter, James, John, Andrew are like, so every stone coming down. When's that going to happen? Because <laughs> that seems like a pretty dramatic event. You know, can you can you tell us how do we know this is coming? And this is what leads up to it. So who said who said these words? It's not a trick. Okay. Who said these words of prophecy? Who said it? There we go. Okay. And who did he say it to? Apostles and disciples. Who recorded it? John Mark through, through Peter. He's writing it down. And who is it written to? Everyone who reads it. That's why he said, let the reader understand. So this is written down for all posterity. But when it was written... The year that it was written, okay, 63 to 66, I tend to be very conservative. Big surprise, right? I'm a conservative. I think closer to 63. I think John Mark was still writing when he was writing with his own hand. I think he was still sprightly, and he's writing this down. He's writing the prophecies of Jesus, knowing that, man, things look like they're about to go bad, bad, bad for the Jews and in the Roman Empire. It's looking uh, this persecution is bad, and it's looking like things are finally going to come to a conclusion here. We better get this written down, because the people who were there and remember it, uh, they may not all be around here much longer, either by age or by war. So that's the setting. Okay, the second thing, we know when it was written. We know who it was written to, all of us. And what's it read like in its original tongue? Hmm. What's the genre? The genre is prophecy and apocalyptic literature. And are there any assumptions that are made when we read this, a.k.a. um, when we we talk about assumption, are there any quotes that are being made? Are there any illusions that are being made that the people of that time would have understood? Now, what I just did is give you a tiny little bubble of what hermeneutics look like. These are the things you want to ask. Friends and neighbors, anytime we approach prophecy in Scripture... You darn tootin'. Better approach it having asked those questions. Because if you don't, you are likely to make a colossal fool of yourself with a quickness. And people have been doing it for 2,000 years. Problem is, some really smart people have been doing it for 2,000 years. People like Cyril of Jerusalem who, who only, only 134 years after the, many of these prophecies were fulfilled, he stood on what was left of the Temple Mount, of so some of the columns still standing and the great polished floor of the Temple Mount in place and ashes from the great fires that burned the Temple still there, memories of it still in people's uh, collective family minds. He stood there and he read all of this as if it would someday happen. Cyril, <laughs> the stones are down. And Cyril's point would be, well, the stones are still here, so it's not done. What? What are you you talking about? Son, you're standing on the very fulfilled prophecy Jesus talked about. What do you mean it's not done? Part of it absolutely had to be done. Others read this passage today and they say, well, none of this has happened. All this has to happen. They have to rebuild the temple so these things can happen. What? What? No, it, it, he, he, he just said, that temple is going to be torn down. And he's talking to these people. And he said, let the reader understand. And later on, he says, this generation will not pass. He's talking to them. This is about to happen. If we read it in that context, then we begin to approach it and realize, okay, Jesus is speaking about things that are about to happen and will be happening in this generation. And we need to read it in that context. Is there a further context Yes. You see, that's the beauty of prophecy in apocalyptic literature, is that it's dynamic. But if we read it simplistic, we enter into that realm of making colossal fools of ourselves, because that's pretexting. And so we want to make sure we read it in the context it was delivered and hear it the way they heard it and the way Jesus delivered it. Fair enough? So we could go back and reread it right now, but our time is mildly short. So what I want to do is I want to put on the goggles. Watch this. You ready? Uh, great, great graphic. I know. I know. It's pretty cool. You don't need to clap or anything. That's not necessary. Um, but when, when the, um, the Olivet Discourse was being delivered, um, it, it was interpreted by the people there and by people over the past 2,000 years in some particular ways. So things Jesus said, this temple is going to be torn down. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation. You're going to be tried in the courts, handed over to the synagogues and and flogged. Uh, Some of you are going to be martyred for my name. You're going to stand before kings and rulers. And he starts to talk about these things that are going to happen. And these poor fishermen from Judea are kind of going, we're we're just the sons of thunder. We catch fish and run our mouths. Uh, This is is kind of a big thing. I mean, we've seen the healing and the feeding and the raising of the dead. That's amazing, but but wow, this is a whole nother level. You got to know they were a bit astonished at this point, okay? And that's good. But there's some goggles that people have looked at this through over the years. So when we read this passage, there's two primary ways, bless you, that we want to approach it and understand it. The first is called futurism. So we read Mark 13, and what we're doing is we're looking at this, and we're thinking, we're doing, what we're thinking, this is all about futurism future events that will one day happen. The futurist understands that nearly all of biblical prophecy and the Olivet Discourse, by the way, Mark 13 is known as the Olivet Discourse because he's sitting on the small side of the Mount of Olives and he's providing a discourse. Got it? Not a scary term. It's just a way theologians identify where it was said. The biblical prophecy in the Olivet Discourse, as well as Revelation, the Synoptic Gospels, in uh, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians is yet to be accomplished. Futurists say, we are waiting for the rapture of the church followed by the great tribulation, second coming, millennial reign, then the judgment, and the new heaven and the new earth. That is the futurist's view of reading this passage. And so they look at it and they say, well, some of the Temple Mount is still there. So every stone has not been thrown down, so it's not completed. So it's a future time that this will happen. And the futurist reads this, and they think the day is coming when we are going to stand before kings and rulers as Christians, and we're going to be judged by them. And during that time, we're going to take the gospel to people all around the world— But there will be false messiahs that are going to come, and we need to be getting ready for them. An antichrist will arise, and we need to be looking out for him. That A great tribulation will begin. It'll be three and a half of bad and three and a half of really bad. And so they're looking for future fulfillment of the entirety of the Olivet Discourse. That's the futurist's approach. The other... um, Extreme is the one we all reject. So um, we're going to put it up here. It looks like this. And we go, boo, hiss. Okay. This is the preterist view. Okay. Boo, hiss. The preterists say it all already happened. Everything happened. The second coming happened. Jesus already came back. The dead in Christ were resurrected, and they have left. And all of this has happened, and now the elect of God are in heaven. There is no resurrection to come. There is no return of Jesus Christ. What we're waiting for now is the destruction of the earth. It's just going to continue winding down until eventually it leads itself to near destruction. Uh, God will just finish it off with total and complete annihilation And then he'll create a new earth and a new heaven and begin all over again. And then those who are in heaven will come down and populate the new earth. No. And so we look to the preterist and we go, um, you have made a colossal fool of yourself. Uh, Way to not read Scripture accurately. And so these are the two extremist positions. Now, let me ask you a question. Um, Way left, way right, do most of us exist on those two realms? I mean, even politics, right? They're icky, but think about it. Do most of us ex- exist in the extremes? Are we out protesting and screaming and yelling and going completely apoplectic because we're, we don't get our way? Are most of us living right there in that place? No. You see, the squishy, malleable middle is where most of us exist and live our lives, right? And when it comes to doctrine and theology, most of the time, what you need to understand, extremist positions to one extreme or the other are not where most of us live, it's where thinkers argue, but most of us live somewhere to that middle. We might skew to this direction or skew to this direction, but for the most of us, we live in the middle. When it comes to the Olivet Discourse, to Revelation, to Thessalonians, to prophecy in general, most of us exist in that middle, and in that middle, there's some positions and understandings that we would want to take. One of the primary positions that takes a center line in this is what we call the partial preterists. In other words, they're not futurists, and they're not over here with the, I'm sorry, you're completely wrong preterists. Uh, they're, they're kind of the middle going, hang on now, some of this is absolutely fulfilled. And here's what the partial preterist um, would say with regards uh, to the Olivet discourse and to, to, um, to prophecy in general. Understands that most of the biblical prophecy of the Olivet discourse, as well as Revelations, Synoptic Gospels, has been accomplished. The next thing the partial preterists look forward to is the return of Christ to call his church and resurrect all the Christian dead to meet him in the air. The beam of judgment follows, and then the redemption of the earth and the installation of new heaven and new earth. The preterists take that the partial preterists take that kind of middle position of going, no, wait, some of this Olivet discourse is absolutely fulfilled. Now, I don't want to I I gotta be careful, I don't bully pulpit this or overplay. Um, a particular position. I'm going to be really transparent with you. I'm a partial preterist. That's where I come from. When I read the Olivet Discourse, that's what I see. Historically, the orthodox position has generally been the partial view. There are some differences, even amongst those of us in in the squishy center, right? And those of us in that center, some of us are are using the term uh, um, rapture, we're looking forward to a day, well, you're using the term "rapture." looking forward to a day when, when Jesus will come and resurrect the church and the dead in Christ arise and, and then there'll be a tribulation and, and then there'll be a millennium and then there'll be uh, the second coming. Uh, the partial preterists are generally going to look at it and they're going to say, well, uh, the, the rapture, the second coming are the same thing. It's a singular event and when it happens, the dead in Christ meet him in the air uh, and those living, the elect who are alive at that time, meet him in the air and at that time, judgment happens in heaven and at the Bema and at the same time uh, the judgment of the earth begins and and then uh, the, the evil are cast into hell and and God redeems the earth and turns it back to what it was supposed to be when he said very good and then the redeemed in Christ who've been at the Bema uh, come and return to their earth and live in eternity with a new heaven and a new earth where Jerusalem resides on the earth and the presence of God is restored and God's people are restored and his holy city is restored. This view, this, this where, where I generally come from, this is what people are looking forward to in prophecy. So, hear me. When you read prophecy, there is room for us to see it different ways. There is room for godly students of Scripture to rightly divide the word of truth and read things a little different. And to be able, in our human, limited perspective and ignorance, learn to love one another learn to hear one another, learn to trust one another, and learn to extend what to one another? Grace, where we may see things a little differently. Do you know what I love about a community church? I mean, I love it. There is room under this canopy for us to be able to have some differences of view here and still be brothers and sisters who love one another and cooperate and collaborate and communicate with each other. We can still do those things, even though there's some areas where we may have mild disagreements. is that great? Isn't that exciting? Something to say about the Olivet Discourse. Fear and dread are just not for us. We do not need to be sitting around in terror that Jesus will return, and we're not good enough at that moment. I wonder if you've ever lived in that kind of a life. You're scared that Jesus might come back and your scale isn't balanced. You know, you know, you figure you got too many bad things as opposed to good things. Then you're going to stand in front of Jesus and he's going to go, ah, scale's off. Now, no heaven for you. Go to hell. Ow. What a sad, demented, sick, twisted, misunderstood way of approaching grace and the forgiveness of God. Others, um, we, we live in fear, thinking uh, we, we can't really live our lives or make any investment in the life of earth because Jesus is going to come back, and when it happens, all oh, that will have just been wasted. No, 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 no. Have families. Build churches. Take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Love people. Invest in relationships. Raise your children to be godly women and men. Live your life as if Jesus may come back in a thousand years. And today, you're going to live the life that Jesus told you to live. Full of grace and love and mercy. With love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, understanding. Live the life that God called you to live. Not a life of fear. You see, that's the path people go down. And they miss all the beauty of being a child of God. So as we talk about grace, some some assurances I want to close with today. Some of those assurances that there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors, if you're looking for a rapture or you're looking for the second coming of Jesus, in both of those instances, there's an assurance I can give you right now with no need to to, uh, parse or to hedge in any way. You know what that is? When Christ calls, the redeemed are going to meet him in the air. And what I like to say is, I have plenty of room in my theology, and I hope you do in yours, to be able to adjust your theology midair. We're probably going to be in the middle of that, going, "Oh, doggone it! I had that part wrong." I mean, I won't be saying that. You understand, but some of you might. We're all going to be. I know Kevin just bowed his head, looking at it. I'm sorry. Sorry about that, Kevin. We're all going to be seeing things the way we're seen, understanding as he understands. We're going to have the perspective of Jesus to go, oh, that's what that, I never picked up on that scripture that that's what that meant. Jesus is going to go, yeah, I know, but you know what I got for you? I got some grace. You're a fallen creature, but now you can see it the way I saw it. Do you see how I worked all things together for good to those that I loved, were called according to my purpose? And I wanted to gather you like, like like a hen gathers her chicks and protects them under his wing. That's what I wanted to do for you. Oh, Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. Woe to you. How often did Jesus want to gather his people like a mother hen does her chicks to protect them? How often, that gives me chills, how often did God want to send prophets to his people so that his people would hear truth and respond? How often did he forgive and restore Israel? And over and over and over again, they hated the prophets. They rejected the message of love and grace. And they nailed God's son to a tree, spitting at him, cursing him, because he didn't give them what they wanted. Whoa. Not one stone would remain standing. The army of Titus would come in in 70 A.D., and with what is recorded as some of history's most brutal, savage, and merciless conquest, even for the Romans, what they did to Jerusalem causes us to shudder. The violence, the brutality, and the totality with which the temple, the Jewish system, the Jewish identity, and the Holy Land itself was ravaged by the furious armies of Titus. goes down in history as fulfilling much of what Jesus said was going to happen. And it's why Jesus wept for Jerusalem. Matthew uh, records it with a little bit more detail throughout the 23rd chapter of Matthew. You, would, you uh, who are familiar with that would read Jesus saying time after time, Woe to you. Woe, woe, Pharisees. Woe, people. Woe, Jerusalem. What comes to you is a time of horror. And it's what I try to protect you from. Listen, justice is about to take place. Judgment is about to take place in Jerusalem. And it's going to be bad. And Jesus is saying, but those of you who endure, those of you who endure, safety. You're safe in me. That's the message of the gospel. Regardless of what you encounter, Regardless of what comes your way, the challenges, the hurts, the pain, regardless of that, grace is the gift of God to His children. And one day, friends and neighbors, the day is going to come, whether you've already died or whether you're alive at the time, that trumpet's going to sound. And Christ is going to return, just like He left in those clouds, just like He said He would. And we're going to be caught up with Him in the air. Call it a rapture if you like the term. I don't like it, but some do. We're going to return. Jesus returns in that second coming. We join him in the air. We're all going to start to see and understand with perfect clarity. And God's perfect plan is going to take place. His plan of grace. Judgment will happen. But his perfect grace is what is extended to all who call upon the name of the Lord. So my question to you this morning. Have you come to a place in your life? where you've accepted the grace of Jesus Christ and allowed that peace to fill your heart and your soul and your mind. Our worship team is coming back up and they're going to prepare kind of the atmosphere for prayer. But here's what I'm going to ask of you. I want you to think hard about this concept of grace and about the peace that it brings into your hearts and souls. I'd ask you to bow your head to close your eyes. I just want you to get alone with God for a moment. You don't need to worry about the people around you or what's going on up here. They're all they're great. You've seen them before. I want you to focus in on you and your God for just a minute. In your heart right now. Before Jesus. Can you say that there is peace in your spirit? Because you know without any shadow of any doubt that if that second coming of Jesus happened in five minutes or later today or tomorrow morning or the middle of the night, that a smile would cross your face. Joy would fill every cell of your being. And with excitement, you would know what it is to fly. To be joined with Jesus in the air and to know I am where I belong with my Lord. That all sins have been forgiven. All failings are behind you. All doubts are settled. Are you ready for that moment? Friends, it's going to come. No man knows that day or the hour, only God. But that day will come. Are you at peace with that? Or brothers and sisters, are, are some of you sitting there right now thinking, ooh, I've got some I've got some stuff I'd be kind of ashamed of if he came right now. Yeah, I've, I've got a little bit of a list, kind of the bad list of stuff I know, my private sin, my secret sin, my things I haven't let go of, stuff I've held on to, that forgiveness I've refused to give, that sin I've refused to give up. This is the time to do some business with God. It simply sounds like this. Father God, I know I have sinned. Lord, in this time together, you've seen those things in my mind. I've I've remembered, I know. There are sins, distances, breaks in relationship between you and me. God, can we just, can we put those behind now? Lord, I'm asking for forgiveness. Can we put them as far away as the east is from the west? Lord, I want to be ready when you call. I don't want to be heavy loaded when it's time for flight. Lord, as we've gathered this morning, we your people, your elect, your chosen, your children, your bride. We've gathered here and we've come to the realization the day is going to come when when grace is going to be extended and judgment as well. God, I just pray that we become ready. Lord, over these weeks as we study this Olivet Discourse, your prophecy, I just pray that um, you would draw us into an atmosphere, draw us into a position, into a mindset, forgiveness, reveling in grace, and one that gives us an incredible sense of peace. Lord, we pray those things in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our friend, for whom we look forward.